Because he had the opening match, right? He's yes. With, yeah. Luda. Yep. Who else is he with? I have forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not so good old days of World Championship Wrestling series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and guess who's knocking on the door? It's Alec Britton. I'm knocking very politely if that helps. <laughs> you would. You would. You would either do that or knock in a strange rhythm that came to you as you came up to my door. Yeah, that's how it works usually. <laughs> How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? It's going all right. Going all right. It feels so weird to say that we are finishing our second series right now. Yeah, that's true. We picked the longest one first. So I think after a while, we will get used to it, but it'll feel shorter every time for a while. Only eight shows. This is nothing. Yeah. Our first series had 18 shows. Nothing else is going to match that. No. Unless we decide at some point to just do the entire Clash of the Champions run, which I'm not thinking that we're going to do at this point. No. It is like 35 of those, I think. That's the only thing that would come close to yeah. the length of Starcade. Well, we finished our second series, Wrestle War. So tonight, it's time to take a look at the series as a whole, hand out some awards, and play some guessing games. So join us and play along. The Wrestle War series ran from 1989 to 1992, covering a total of four shows. First, we're going to take a look at some statistics from the various shows. And I'd like to start out with the most pay-per-view buys. So, Al, which of the Wrestle Wars do you think had the most pay-per-view buys? Ooh, um, I feel like given wrestling popularity, it might even be the first one. That's closer to, like, peak wrestling, you know, WCW and then Hogan and WF time period. So you're saying 89? 89, yeah, with 89. 89, fair, fair guess, fair guess. In fourth place, we have Wrestle War 1992 with 120,000 pay per view buys. In third place, unfortunately, is Wrestle War 89 oh. with 150,000 pay per view buys. In second place is Wrestle War 1991 with 155,000 pay per view buys. Very close there. Mm -hmm. And in first place was Wrestle War 1990 blowing them all out of the water with 210,000 pay-per-view buys. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. About a 60,000 buy difference between it and the next one, so... <laughs> now, it's not as bad as we had with Starcade, where the one show was like 650,000. Yes. And next one's like 480 or something, way lower. Which is still high, but way lower. And then the last one was down in the tens of thousands again, as I recall. Yes, it was. <laughs> The series took place across four different arenas in four different states, Tennessee, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. No single state or arena got more than one Russell War this time. So now we're going to look at attendance, live attendance for the shows. Which one do you think got the most for that? I would think, if you're looking at numbers, probably still Russell War 1990, then if that's like the big show. Well, let's see if you're right. 
All right. Fourth place, Wrestle War 1989 with 5,200. Third place, Wrestle War 1992 with 6,000. Second place, Wrestle War 1991 with 6,800. Again, a very small difference, mm-hmm. although for two different shows. Yeah. And in first place, you were right, Wrestle War 1990 had 7,894 people in attendance. Doesn't seem like those are super high numbers, though, overall. No, no, it doesn't. In fact, Wrestle War 1990 takes place in the Greensboro Coliseum, which hosted several starcades that each drew around 16,000 people in attendance, quite a bit more. So yeah, the live attendance numbers were not great for this series, unfortunately, though the pay-per-view numbers were roughly equivalent to the starcades of the time. And finally, the number of matches. Which one do you think had the most matches? Hmm, I remember. They're all fairly close. There's not like one show where there's like 20 matches. In there. We, didn't have, we didn't have a show of 14 this time. That's right, yeah. That, yeah. Well, the tag title international matches, I think that was that show. Yes. Ooh, um, I feel like it might be 91, but I'm not sure on that one. All right. In third place... Wrestle War 1990 had seven. Tied for second place is Wrestle War 1992 and Wrestle War 1989, which both had nine. And in first place is Wrestle War 1991. There you go. With ten matches. Now that does not count dark matches that a couple of them had. Right, right, yeah. That we had one show we get a dark match at Eddie Guerrero so we don't get to see it. Yes. So frustrating. Yes. 92, I think, at DDP in a dark match. Yes, it did. Yes. And Firebreaker Chip, but who cares about that? Yeah. I'm going to bury the lead, yeah. Well, we've looked at each individual Wrestle War, but now we'd like to consider the series as a whole. What is Wrestle War as a series? Is there a thematic link between the shows and identity that unites them? So what do you think, Al? What, what would you say are some of the uniting factors in Wrestle War. Yes, I was going through, I was trying to find one that connected all four shows, but I found a bunch that are like one to two shows or maybe two to three shows. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I have a full bridging one like that, but I definitely have some that sort of flow through interesting ways um, between the shows. Mm -hmm. So for instance, the very first show, 1989 Wrestle War, features the first big pay-per-view match of the Dynamic Dudes. Shane and uh, Johnny Ace. And Wrestle War 1990 features literally the very last match. That's right. The Dynamic Dudes. The last match before Shane Douglas left and like two shows before Johnny Ace left. So you get to see their first big moment and then their last moment. Mm-hmm. Which is a little sad. Another one I found interesting was Wrestle War 1990 features the Chicago Street fight between the Road Warriors and technically the Skyscrapers. <laughs> yes. In that both of the members are gone, and only one of the placement members is there, with a substitute basically filling in the gap for this last match. But the ending part of that sets up Doom united with Teddy Long, mm-hmm. replacing poor Mean Mark there. Setting them up for their biggest moment when they actually get you tag team champions, you have these big dominant wins over a bunch of wrestlers like the Steiners. And then the very next show, 1991 is the match where they lose the titles, and they break up. Yep. Yeah, so we're seeing the start and end of two different tag teams. Yeah. And technically the end of a third one, we just don't get to see the start of the skyscrapers. That's true, yeah. 
it's weird that they don't overlap timing wise. Just so much overlap. You think that would too? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we hammered this point home pretty hard in the very first show. The confusing match order of that show, <laughs> yes. nine, where you have arguably the greatest match of all time, as they have a Ric Flair, no less, between Flair and Steamboat, and then like three more matches after that, as if that's not the main event of your show. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the main event of the show is the match for the United States Tag Team titles, which is weird still. It's still confusing to me that they didn't at least end with the world tag team titles. Right. I still, I still maintain you should end with Flair and Steamboat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, total agreement on that, yeah. Yeah, you end with this big thing where Terry Funk beats him up and like, what's the future of Ric Flair? What's the future of the title? Yep. And that's a great thing people start watching your shows, but instead you have to have people talking about it afterwards. Yeah. That features, I would say, probably the highest point those titles ever got. It's a main event of show. That's got to be the only time. I, I could be wrong, but it seems like the only time that ever happens. But then as you get further through the shows, you get them in fairly high-profile matches. You have the watch of Tom Zink and Pillman defending them. It's important, but it's definitely not as important. Mm-hmm. And then by 1992, it is actually still a thing. It's defending in the opening match, and this basically a makeshift team of veteran wrestlers lose the titles to the Freebirds, who, as good as they are, they are really just sort of the placeholder for tag teams for that era. Because mm-hmm. you suddenly don't to do, put them on them, that you're fine for a few months, and then pick a facing to beat them. Pretty straightforward booking. Yeah. And of course, by the end of 1992, actually by the middle of 1992, like literally two months after the show, they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they've reached their apex, the very first show, and there's nowhere to go but down. It's kind of a shame. Because I do like having alternate tag titles like that. The hero hierarchy, but they definitely don't ever use them correctly. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, another one I have. Hopefully I'm taking all yours. No, no. Okay, good. The one I have is the delayed Rise of Sting. Yes. Because <laughs> you have Sting in a brief squash match on the very first show as TV champion to build him up as a credible wrestler. The next point, 1990s Wrestle War, he's supposed to main event the show. Unfortunately, he gets a serious injury about like a month before the show. And they have to rework the whole thing around it. Yeah. So thankfully, that's only just a sort of stopgap there. Because then 91 and 92, he gets the main event in War Games matches. Yes. And the latter of which he does as champion as well. So there's a, a fortunate break there, quite literal and figurative, I guess in his case, where he's definitely going to be a top guy, and it just takes longer because of that. And you sort of see that all through Wrestle War. You see him... See him on the rise, and then suddenly stop, and then technically come back up. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. If you watch the early shows, there's a lot of veteran wrestlers. There's like a real focus on them. And that's nothing a bad thing, per se. But it's definitely, the first show feels like you're continuing what you've been doing through the 80s. It's all the same teams, in maybe slight variations of matches and slight variations of pairings. But there's no one new, really on 89 or nothing made in a major way mm-hmm. and sort of slowly as you get to the show especially like i think 91 you got a lot of it where suddenly here's all these new guys and hope ifl situations and you have like dustin Rhodes, for instance coming in there as well and helping prove the point you have buddy landell losing dustin road mm-hmm. landell being a fixture of the late 80s wrestling scene so you see you see this sort of passing the torch right yeah definitely as is referenced in promos throughout the shows you can definitely see that things change a lot during this period in wrestling and you can see it just in this sort of 
small window with Russell War. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, I would I would agree on that, and I think that last statement you made is hitting at what I feel the actual theme of Russell War is, and that's transition. Yeah, I'd say so. Russell War begins mere months after the closure of Jim Crockett Promotions and the beginning of WCW. Jim Crockett Promotions closed in November 1988, the month before that year's Starcade. Yes. And Russell War begins in May 1989. It lasts for four shows, with its final show occurring in May 1992, a little over a year before WCW leaves the NWA for good in September 1993. So that puts Russell War solidly in the early period of WCW, when it's still trying to establish its identity as a company. It's a tumultuous time, characterized by change. The first two shows are produced under the NWA banner, the last two under WCW. That's true, yeah. The NWA titles are defended on the first two shows, and the WCW titles on the last two. Oh, yeah. The first and last show are in May, the second and third in February. <laughs> yes. That's still strange. It is very strange. The first three shows are under Jim Hurd, and the last is under the combination of Kip Frey and Bill Watts. And Tony Schiavone is in the WWF during the first and second shows, Dusty Rhodes is there during the first show, and Ric Flair goes there before the final. While Lex Luger goes to the World Bodybuilding Federation before ending up in the WWF as well. That's true, yeah. Jim Ross is on commentary for every show, but he has a different color commentator every time. Yeah. There's a music transition as well. The one show has Terry Funk as the... As the as lunatic. Judge. Yeah, just a judge, and then building up to his match with Flair. And by the very next year, he's re-retired and just congenial announcer. Yes, yes. Having, you know, viciously assaulted Ric Flair at the previous show. <laughs> Many matches on Wrestle War seem to be there, as you were pointing out, Al, just to show off some new performers and give them a chance on the big stage, even to the extent that we noted a few matches were clearly just quick squashes to show off one of the performers. Yes. Story takes a backseat on a lot of the matches with newer performers, without much to it beyond one or both having to prove themselves on pay-per-view for the first time. We commented more than once that matches on a show seemed designed to show the audience who the performers were, rather than to resolve a standing issue or an emotional arc. Stakes are often low, with many matches being about nothing more than the match itself. But not all matches. Yes. Some performers, particularly the established ones, get some of their most epic matches. Ric Flair vs. Ricky Steamboat, Ric Flair vs. Lex Luger, The Rock and Roll Express vs. The Midnight Express. Two huge War Games matches with some of WCW's finest performers. On most of the Russell War shows, there's a dividing line between the matches. The new performers are getting their tryouts and figuring out their styles and characters, while the established or veteran performers carry the show's emotional weight and provide reliable fun for the audience. Yeah. And that's what gives the shows their feeling of transition, of trying to figure out an identity, I think. Yeah. They give the impression of a company using its existing talent to sustain itself while it figures out what will work going forward. It's not the worst strategy, though the execution leaves something to be desired at times. Yeah, the fact that Super Invader makes it onto the show. <laughs> yes. Among others. <laughs> yeah. And the shows can be quite awkward, whether in terms of the strange order of presentation of 89 that you mentioned. Yes. 
or the extremely clear dividing line between basic and intense matches in Wrestle War 1992. <laughs> yes. There is something of interest on every single show, but not every show holds the viewer's interest. Yeah. The transition theme is seen in storylines as well at times, as you were pointing out. You mentioned the end of the skyscrapers, the breakup of Doom, and actually the formation of the relationship between Teddy Long and Doom. Yeah. And, of course, there's Lex Luger cementing his face turn by going to help the injured Sting. Yeah. Or Larry Zbysko getting booted from the Dangerous Alliance. There's a feeling of change, of figuring out precisely who should be where, doing what, for the entire run. And, actually, if you want a great example of that sense of the mix of old and new stars, consider War Games 1992. Mm-hmm. Both teams feature a mix of well-established stars, and stars that either joined WCW only a year prior recently returned, or we're getting established in new roles. Yeah, that's true. So I think we've already mentioned <laughs> in detail on the last few shows, but some parts of the transition are much more successful than others. Yeah. Like you said, Al, Wrestle War definitely helps in the rise of Sting, for instance, mm-hmm. though interrupted. But he's already popular starting out, but the last two shows give him some truly epic matches. Yes. But beyond him, the Steiners... Brian Pillman, Steve Austin, and Dustin Rhodes are all new or new-ish performers who get some notable moments and will go on to be very important figures for WCW or for wrestling in general. Others, like Z-Man, would be really notable for WCW during the Wrestle War period, but not go much beyond it. Yeah. And still others like Big Josh or Mean Mark Callis would leave soon after the Russell War appearances and find much more success in the WWF under different gimmicks. <laughs> For sure, yeah. And then there's those like Scotty Flamingo or Marcus Alexander Bagwell, who will find success in WCW later under different gimmicks. Yeah, very different. And of course, some like Super Invader, who just don't really get off the ground. <laughs> no, no, he does not. So that's Russell War to me. It's a show about a company trying to figure out what it wants to be, focused more on establishing a set of performers than on making sure each match has a story. He gives the series an unusual feel, where you get to see some performers in the early stages of working out their gimmicks or working out new roles. You still get some epic matches here and there, but much of the series is more interesting as a curiosity. Most matches don't really draw you in or get you emotionally involved, but they're still neat to watch. Mm-hmm. You have any other feelings on the transitions? Yeah, I will say, yeah, right on the great example would be Dustin Rhodes. Yes. He has a match just sort of be a match, him and Buddy Landell. That's 91. Mm-hmm. And in 92, he's part of the War Games team. Yes, exactly. That's a big jump for him. Yeah, absolutely. He's gone from, okay, let's figure out who you are, mm-hmm. to, okay, we know who you are. Now we're going to put you as part of this major, major feud and have a storyline that is in part centered on you. Right. I think you you get to see that all over the series of people trying to figure out their gimmicks, and some are more successful than others. You know, we mentioned uh, Terry Taylor, that he gets to do the York Foundation thing, and he seems really to be solidifying in that role. But then by the next show, they've decided, no, maybe that doesn't work, so we're going to have you try this other thing that unfortunately was worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And no disrespect intended to Terry Taylor. He was perfectly fine in the ring in both matches. Oh, yeah. But just he had so much more character in the first one was all. For sure, yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's a thing, you know, when I talk about the future versus the past, mm-hmm. um, I talked about it in depth on 89 show, 
Yes. About how there's the match with Dick Murdoch and Bob Orton Jr., which I don't think is, even watching a couple times, it's not bad. <laughs> but as I said then, it feels out of place in the show. Mm-hmm. It feels like a 1980s match, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. But it's on this show with all the other people on the rise. And then if you look back at 1992 show, you have all these people getting their first big chances. Johnny B. Bad, Sky Flamingo, or people that are close but not quite there, like Ron Simmons. Right. But then at the same time, you have Greg Valentine suddenly back. Yes. And then again, it's Greg Valentine, as we say, but it's... He's literally on the first show we ever did. Yeah. He's in the 83 Star Arcade and his bigger profile appearance. Almost 10 years later, it feels weird that he's just back as this... As a major character, apparently, yeah. during this period. Yeah, he's one of the title holders, right? Yep, that's true. I, I think that's that's where transition feels like the biggest thing to me. It's like, we're using these older stars to build up new ones, or we're trying to figure out, can we slot these people in again that have gone away and come back? It's all of this massive trying to figure out who we are and what we're doing and who's going to be in what role. And I think it's positioning at this particular period with only four shows makes it this really interesting snapshot of the company in its earliest days. Mm -hmm. They're not sure exactly what type of company they're going to be because they've stopped being Jim Crockett promotions where they were all sports centric. Yes. But they don't want to be the WWF. No. So they're they're trying to figure out okay what is our what is the character of our promotion, who do we want to push who's the who's going to be the focus. Mm-hmm. Some of that they they kind of have a good idea of that obviously we're going to put Sting in there. Yes, and you see him like you said pushed really strongly for the entire thing. You know, aside from the one show where he's injured, but they keep him involved on that one even. Mm-hmm. So you can tell the entire thing. Okay, they've clearly got faith in this guy. Oh yeah, hundred percent. But then you see other things where it's like, okay, Ric Flair is a huge part for the first three, but then suddenly he's gone. Right. And Dusty comes back from being away for a while. Mm-hmm. Lex Luger has this really like career-defining moment on the second show, and then by the end of it, he's gone as well. Yeah. So whether they're intending for them to happen or not, you you have all these moves going on where some of their bets are paying off, some of their bets are not paying off. You're you're seeing that play out really strongly on the screen in this in this series. Yeah, and it's interesting seeing possible stars that get left behind in that, like mm-hmm. Mark Callis. Yes, because they couldn't figure out what to do with them. He got to go WF and make lots and lots of money for them. Yes, yeah. If they could have worked out something for him, then who knows how things would have gone mm-hmm. if he had stayed. And then you look at one of the participants in the first main event, Eddie Gilbert. Yeah. Who clearly has like a very star-making kind of intended turn in that one where he has to fight the entire match by himself. Mm -hmm. And you don't see him for the rest of the series. Yeah. There's like tryouts, kind Mm -hmm. of. And sometimes the tryout goes pretty well. Like, I liked Eddie Gilbert's performance in that one. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the tryout goes pretty well, but nothing happens with it. We noted... um, Dan Spivey as well. Yes. On uh, 91. Mm-hmm. That he just has this tremendous, tremendous performance against Lex Luger there that was that was very, very nicely done. But unfortunately, again, he, he doesn't really become this major force for WCW going forward. Yeah. That, I think, is, is just such an interesting thing with this show in particular, that because of how it's set up, you're seeing them throwing all these people at the wall and seeing what sticks, basically. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of that, for sure, yeah. (laughs) 
it's a neat series to watch as a snapshot of the company and as just a, a look at a bunch of people early in their careers still figuring out who they are. Yeah. Well, not every show is going to just grab you from the get-go. All of them are fascinating to see and easy to recommend if you're interested in wrestling history. For sure, yeah. There's weird moments you maybe didn't know happened. Yes. Like the fact there's this dang Iron Sheik match. Yes. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed that before we watched Wrestle War. No, absolutely not. Because, I mean, what? No, of course <laughs> not. It makes no sense. So now we've had a look at the Wrestle War stats, but we're going to take a look at some interesting data that I've gathered on the performers who appeared on the shows. Okay. All right. Are you ready for this, Al? Sure, sure. Hit me. All right, so first up, who appeared as a competitor in the most matches? Any guesses? Okay, let me think. I think someone that's on every show. Ooh, this gets tricky. If I don't, if I don't cheat and just look at my notes. <laughs> Not that you'd ever know, but no, I'm honorable person. I, I appreciate that, Al. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of three-show performers. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sting obviously misses one show. Flair misses one show. Luger misses one. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, I wonder, um, trying to think if maybe Michael Hayes might be in there. Because he's all around throughout this series. All right. Let's go with him. He's a dark horse pick, yeah. All right. So here we go for top three appearances as a match competitor. Okay. Get ready. <laughs> okay. In third place is a 16-way tie. <laughs> I believe that. There's a lot of people that had two appearances as a competitor on this show. We've got Johnny Ace, yep. Arn Anderson, Shane Douglas, Curtis Hughes, under two different gimmicks. Yes. Butch Reed, Dustin Rhodes, Animal, Hawk, Ron Simmons, Tracy Smothers, Dan Spivey, Ricky Steamboat, Kevin Sullivan, Terry Taylor, Barry Windham, and Larry Zabisco. In second place is a nine-way tie. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of people had three appearances as a competitor. Yes, that's for sure. Bobby Eaton. Oh, yeah. Ric Flair. Jimmy Garvin. Mm-hmm. Lex Luger. Ricky Morton. Brian Pillman. Scott Steiner. Sting. And Z-Man. That's true, yeah. And uh, as we pointed out, Sting, of course, would have had four matches if not for his injury in 1990. Yeah. Likewise, Arn would have had three if he was injured in 91, I believe. He was being the first war game, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very good point. And in first place, it is a two-way tie. Okay. So these performers had four appearances as a competitor. They are the only two performers who appeared as a competitor on every single Wrestle War. Okay. Michael Hayes. Hey, you got it. <laughs> and Rick Steiner. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. Yep. Rick Steiner is part of the U.S. tag title main event of the first show. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And Michael Hayes, of course, has his uh, singles match against Lex Luger on that show. Yeah, if you notice when I goes back and watch these shows, you might forget that there's a period where it's Rick Steiner is only one of the two wrestling. Right, yeah. At least on the main stage. He brings in Scott as the younger brother. Scott's first Starcade appearance was 89, after Wrestle War 89. Right, right, yeah. So that's matches overall. Who was a competitor in the most main events? Now, I'm only counting actual main events here. That's the final aired match of the show, regardless of whether we feel that it should have been the <laughs> final aired match of the show. Any guesses on this? Um, well, since you 
debuted before, I've got to think it's probably Rick Steiner, right? If he's in the U.S. Tag Title match in 89, and he's in the War Games match in 91. Mm-hmm. Because Flair is the main of... Oh, I guess, let's see. No, Flair's not main in the first show, but he's main in the second and third show. Mm-hmm. If I got that right. Wow. It's, fun, it's funny, four shows, you think it'd be, le- be so much easier, but... I know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? It's a trick of the brain. I think if, well, if you're counting being outside the match, I'd be Sting, wouldn't it? Because Sting is... We're doing competitors only. Okay, so yeah, it's not Sting then. Yes, yeah, so I'm going with Rick, Rick Steiner. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to let you know before I read the list. The first place is actually a five-way tie, and you got three of them. Oh, oh You've listed you three of them. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but first, second place is a 14-way tie. Oh, goodness. The short length of the series combined with the war games or tag match main events on three of the four shows make it a really big list. So we have Arn Anderson, Steve Austin, Bobby Eaton, Eddie Gilbert, Nikita Koloff, Lex Luger, Brian Pillman, Dustin Rhodes, Rick Rude, Dan Spivey, Ricky Steamboat, Scott Steiner, Kevin Sullivan, and Sid Vicious, all with a single main event. Yeah. Okay. And then in first place, we have a five-way tie, and that is... Rick Flair, Rick Steiner, Sting, Barry Windham. I forget about him, yeah. And Larry Zabisco. That's true, yeah. All have two main events. The anchors of their teams, yeah. Yep, they were both uh, in both war games. Yeah, yeah. Windham and Zabisco. Right. And Sting. Rick Flair and Rick Steiner were each in one war games and had another main event separate. Correct. A show's not just about competitors, though. There's all sorts of other roles to fill. So let's talk about the talkers, the commentary team. So who called the most matches? This one's probably fairly obvious. It's got to be Jim Ross, right? (laughs) Yes. You want to wager on who called the most as a color commentator? Okay. um, I'm trying to remember. I think we said 91 had the most matches. So is it Rhodes then? Is it Dusty? All right. Let's find out. In third place is a two-way tie between Jesse Ventura and Bob Cottle, with nine matches each. Okay. In second place is Dusty Rhodes, with ten matches. Okay. You were right, by the way. That second place is Dusty Rhodes, because he's the highest-ranking color commentator. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. And in first place, with 35 matches called, is good old JR. Gotcha. JR calls every single match on the series. There you go, yeah. All right, managers. What's your guess for who managed in the most matches? And uh, just so you know, second place on this one was, again, very insane. So I'm just going to list first place. Okay. Uh, okay, let me think who with multiple managerial positions. Mm-hmm. We have Teddy Long at least twice. Because mm-hmm. he's with these sort of skyscrapers and then Doom on their last one. Hmm. Didn't pay as much attention to that. <laughs> so yeah, it's a tricky one. There, there wasn't a manager that had, you know, five on a single show or whatever it was, too. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the only thing I can think of top of my head is, is Teddy Long. Then he, mm-hmm. he has two for sure. Yeah, that one we've discussed that he had two matches. Yes. So first place is a three-way tie, actually. Okay. You are correct. Teddy Long had uh, two matches as manager, but there were actually two other people that had two matches as manager. Okay. And those are... Paul E. Dangerously, 
course, yeah. Who managed the Samoans on one show and then was the manager of one of the war games. Right, right, yeah. And Gary Hart. Oh, right, right, yep, yeah. Yep, He is with Great Muda, and then he's with Bob Orton Jr. Oh, right, right, yeah, of course. On the same show. Next up, referees. So who refereed the most matches? And note, I don't believe it actually matters for this one, but note that I'm counting any referee appearance here, whether they're the initial assigned ref, came out to replace the ref after a ref bump, or came out to rectify a referee's call. So any guesses on that? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Okay, so based on this period, probably have to go with, I might be wrong here, the most trustworthy referee of all time, Nick Patrick. <laughs> all right. Pretty much always a fair guess once we've hit the 90s with WCW, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. In third place is Old West Saloon ref, Mike Atkins, who refereed seven matches. In second place is Randy Anderson, who was ref for eight matches. And in first place is indeed good old trustworthy Nick Patrick, (laughs) out in front with 11 matches. Wow. Nice. Yeah, there was actually quite a bit of referee variety on on this series, but Nick Patrick still got the most overall. Nice. So we've talked about a lot of the people with a ton of appearances, but what about the people with the fewest? So it's probably no surprise since it's such a short series, but there were 56 people who only showed up for a single match in any capacity on a wrestle war. Of those, one of them, Tatsumi Fujinami, took home an MVP award for a single appearance. Now note that some might have showed up again in other ways, and one, Junkyard Dog, technically makes an entrance for a second match, but is eliminated before the match, so by my judgment, the match that actually happens does not involve him. I agree, yeah. So technicality on that one, but right. uh, he's on the list. And obviously he should be a multi-time performer. There's a whole thing where he's... I guess supposed to be in the opening match right. of the very first show, and yes. never explain why he misses it, and I guess there's no problem with it, there's no issue with it. <laughs> I forgot about that, yeah. Yeah. Last but not least, let's take a look at who's taken home the coveted Match of the Night and MVP awards. So first up, we're going to go for each host who took home the most MVP awards. So who do you think you gave the MVP award to the most, Al? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you think I remember my own picks, but I really don't. <laughs> that's one of those uh, do-you-know-yourself moments, right? Yeah, exactly. I remember my own picks. I know, I know who I picked in 91. I feel like I got to go with Ric Flair. Okay. The answer, trick question, it's a four-way tie. Oh. You never picked the same person more than once this time. <laughs> Me. <laughs> so you picked Ric Flair, Ricky Morton, Brian Pillman, and Sting each once. Right. I think it, w- it would have been Flair in 91, but I picked Pillman because he the story arc. And- he just had so much of the heart of that match. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Who do you think I gave MVP to the most? Ooh, okay. I know we shared one. I remember that one. Actually, I think we might have shared two. Mm-hmm. I forget which way you went the very first one. Might be Sting, maybe? I'm not sure on that one. It's a good guess, but it's actually Ric Flair. Ah! I did share your pick on the first one. I thought so. And I believe he also got it for 90. Okay. Yes, because I loved his reaction to Luger when he chopped Luger and it did nothing. Right, right. Oh, no, I can, I can totally see that one, yeah. Yep. 
And actually, I know we shared 91. We both picked Pillman. Yeah, so Ric Flair got two picks from me. Gotcha. So, who do you think got the most MVPs overall, then? Okay. The combination of both of us. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I didn't do small math in my head. Let's see. Okay, if I picked Flair once, and you picked him twice, uh-huh. I feel like that's got to beat anybody else. Okay. So, in third place is a three-way tie. We have Sting, Fujinami Tatsumi, and Ricky Morton all got one. In second place, Brian Pillman got two picks. And in first place, indeed, it is Ric Flair with three picks. Nice. So now, match of the night participations, and we're only looking at competitors. So who do you think competed in your match of the night choices the most, Al? And I will let you know in advance, it is a tie. Okay. I know I picked Flair Steamboat for the first one. Mm-hmm. I know I picked War Games in the last two shows. Kind of an easy pick, but mm-hmm. to the most part, there was... There was more competition than I was anticipating. Thankfully, there was some. That's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a blowout. The one that throws everything off is, I remember, a uh, 1990s one. I must have picked the Rock and Roll Express, Midnight Express one then. Yes, I believe so. Okay. So that means Eden shows up a couple times then. He's in that, and he's also in at least one War Games match. Yeah. I got a bunch of people that overlap, don't I? <laughs> yes, you do. But yeah, so Flair's definitely in it for multiple ones. Steamboat's in multiple ones. Yep. Eaton's in multiple ones. Yep. Sting obviously gets a couple. Yep. I think it's got to be... Hmm. I keep, I keep almost thinking the answer that I guessed myself. <laughs> or am I like fifth guessing myself at this point? Yes. I'm <laughs> way past that. So you've said Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, Bobby Eaton, and Sting. Is that your final answer? Yes. Okay. You are very close. Okay. It is actually a six-way tie. Ah, I missed. You have Ric Flair. Yeah. Ricky Steamboat. Mm-hmm. Bobby Eaton. Yes. Sting. So you got those four right. Okay, good. But there are also Barry Windham. Oh, of course. No. And Larry Zabisco. You're right, yeah. Who are both in both War Games matches. Right, right, right. So who do you think competed in my match of the night choices the most? Okay. I will let you know it is not a tie. Right, okay. Let's see. Flair would have two with you. First War Games match and the 89s match. You definitely have Steiners and you'd have Flair and you'd have Steamboat for yours, for sure. Yeah, so you went to something different than me, cause you, but you have a lot of crossover with mine, don't you? Because we both picked War Games matches. Yes, however, in, in my case, there's actually only one person listed for my first place. Okay. Uh, who is it? All right, so the answer is Ric Flair. Ah, there He you was go. in three matches of the night. I chose Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat, Ric Flair versus Lex Luger, and right. the first War Games match. There you go. And finally, so who do you think competed in the most matches of the night? <laughs> That's uh, between both of us. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Again, a lot of the standbys, Flair and Steamboat, definitely would be repeating a lot between ours. Mm-hmm. Getting picked... Four of them can count up my head if you count the the war games matches they were they were both in that were picked. Mm-hmm. If we both went with war games the last two, then Sting's got to have a good handful as well. Mm-hmm. And and Sabisco because thinking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the um, Tony Blanchard position. Yes, though I don't think he's topping it, but he's definitely in there. What you think? Who's first? I think Flair edges out if I did the math in that correctly. All right. So in third place is Bobby Eaton. With three picks between us. Okay. 
he was in uh, one of the war games, and then you picked him for the Midnight right. versus Rock and Roll match. Makes sense. Second place is a four-way tie. We have Ricky Steamboat, Barry Windham, Larry Zabisco, and Sting. Uh, the last three were all in two War Games matches, and the first was in one War Games match and the Flair versus Steamboat match. Right. And then in first place is Ric Flair. Yes. He got a pick from each of us for Flair versus Steamboat and the first War Games match, and then I chose Flair versus Luger. So that gave him the total of five. There you go. He earned it. Yeah, definitely. So with all the data out of the way, it's time to give out some series awards. So each show, we've awarded our Match of the Night and MVP, but now we're going to look at things across the entire series. So to start off, let's go for our series MVPs. So I'd like you to pick three people in no particular order. So who are your series MVPs, Al? Okay. So obviously we have the sort of anchor of the company up until they, you know, threw him out. And that'd be Ric Flair. Mm -hmm. Because he was a reliable guy for big... Long, hard-working matches that tell amazing stories. No question. Yes. Then, obviously, I've got Sting. Even missing a year, he has a good, if if short, performance in the very first show. <laughs> yes. He he does his job well. They just don't give him any time to do anything with it. And then, being the captain of two Warring his matches, one of which is successful, it helps him out a lot. Yes. Just because I don't want to be too obvious, slipping in guy who did get MVP from two people... But it's kind of forgotten and lost in here. Be Brian Pillman. Yep. Even outside of War Games, he had what I thought was a good performance with Tom Zink against the Freebirds. Mm -hmm. And he had his good headlining match where he was sort of heelish, sort of not heelish against Tom Zink versus with Tom Zink. Yes. Yeah, I think you're into that. Mm -hmm. And of course, Sting gets pushed right up to the edge of being on a list from the Captain Sting America jacket alone. 100%. <laughs> right. Yes. So for mine, Two out of the three are the same. Gotcha. We have Ric Flair. Mm -hmm. He's part of three terrific matches on the Wrestle War series and does a terrific job in each of them, aside from putting in good showings on the promo front and being part of one of the non-match moments that will definitely live in my memory for a long time. Always a great performer, Flair proved willing to go above and beyond for the show and give his all every single time he appeared. Yep. Second, I've got Brian Pillman. There you go. Just like you, Al, I found Pillman a very reliable performer across three separate matches, with two of them being true standout matches. He provides the emotional heart of the first War Games match, and he puts in a terrific showing for the entire match. Mm -hmm. And his match against Z-Man on the 1992 show brings badly needed emotion to a show that had, to that point, been seriously lacking. 100%, yes. So I've always known that Pillman was good, but in this series I got to see how good. Yes. And finally for me... Terry Funk. Okay. Funk was great on this series. Mm -hmm. He's the other major part of perhaps the series' most amazing moment alongside Flair. He makes a heck of an impression there, besides doing a great job in the judges' setup for the match. Mm -hmm. Then he goes on to a hilarious and really fun performance as a commentator on the next show, proving himself highly entertaining and strange. Yes. But very insightful in the role as well. I really enjoyed the depth and variety of Funk's performances on the series. Yeah, I can see that. Next up, matches of the series. So three matches, again, in no particular order. Okay, so best matches. So I've got, as stated by the man himself, 
the Ric Flair vs. Ricky Steamboat match. Mm-hmm. One of the hardest worked, strongest world time matches they've ever had. There's no question. Yeah. Flair makes a great heel. They made this great story. They built up the promo, which is nice to get and lacking on later shows. Promos for sure. Flair is this sort of womanizing, rich guy who does whatever he feels like, gets whatever he wants. And they have Ricky Steamboat, who's the hardworking champion and, more importantly, a family man. Yes. Which is a neat dynamic you don't have to see as much. It's a way to make him interesting, but also, like, serious. Because like, you, you can easily do the family man sort of thing and make him boring. Like, oh, he just goes home and doesn't plays with his kids. But they, they do the right balance there where it's, it works, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it was nice that they even covered that with the entrances that year. Yes, that was really good, too, yeah. Okay, I, got, I had four, so I got to... I have to find which one I'm going to excise. It's always a hard choice, isn't it? Yeah. Which is good. I'm glad when it's a hard choice, what's, oh, yeah. what's best. Absolutely. Okay, so I think, yeah, just, just to cover, cover variety, I think I'll do this way. So I've got the 1992 War Games match. While I liked the first War Games match, other than Pillman's aspect, the structure made it a little tricky to follow. Once, like, four people got in and, and more people got in, it got harder to follow for me. Because there could be a whole other match going on in the ring, like in the corner of the frame, and then really quite focused on enough. And for me, I think they nailed down a lot of stuff they had to get right in the second one. Because mm-hmm. they made sure to have all of these intersecting feuds. So you'd have Rick Root come in, and then you'd have his rival, Ricky Steamboat, come in. You go right to it, you wouldn't mess around, basically. So I thought, if I have to pick one War Games match, I feel like I should, for best matches, because they were both good. I'm going with the second one, the Deadly Alliance for Sitting Squadron. Dangerous Alliance. Oh, sorry. I have <laughs> Deadly everywhere. I don't know why I have Deadly. Mortal Kombat. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I think, just to be the, throw the darkest one, I hope I don't take your, actually, I kind of hope I take yours, just because I'm spiteful sometimes. <laughs> I have the, uh, the match that did make MVP, just because it's strong competition. But was the, I think, three of the surprise of the series. That was the Yamazaki Kitamura versus mm. Miss A and Nikki Honda match. That was so good. As much as I know Japanese wrestling, which is not a lot, to be fair, and knowing nothing about these women coming in, they delivered amazing performances. Absolutely, yeah. They get the crap out of each other. <laughs> yes. But in a way that was very stylish, and they're kicking each other really hard in these ways that. Looks like it hurt, and I'm sure it did. But there's there's a part of that where it can just look like it's just violence. But there's such fluidity to what they would do. Mm-hmm. All these holds and all these moves they would do. Yeah, the, I had no expectation for this match, not knowing these people at all, and it was just a real good surprise. All right, so mine, again in no particular order, I've got... Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat, Wrestle War 1989. That's a great match from a legendary feud, and it shows off just how good both men could be in the ring, brought supreme intensity, and used the fact that there were judges to really affect the match storyline and strategies portrayed by the wrestlers. It is one of the best matches I have ever seen. What's nice with that match, too, is it's kind of overlooked, for the most part, historically. Mm -hmm. Because people think of the famous... Flair's team of matches, they go right to Chi-Town Rumble. Right, yeah. Which is the show before this. It's part of a three-match series, so at some point, and we'll have to make the same decision, I'm sure, but at some point you kind of look at, okay, which of those three is the best? Yes. But looking at it on this series, 
oh my gosh, it's it's definitely one of the best matches on these four shows. Yeah, absolutely. Second, I've got War Games, The Four Horsemen versus Sting and Company. Okay. From Wrestle War 1991. Okay. The first of the two War Games matches on the series shows how crazy and brutal those matches can get. It's a collection of insane spots, some very cool teamwork, and the exceptional flow of a War Games match that more than makes up for a few small flaws. The ending could be better in concept and execution, but the rest of the match is terrific. Mm-hmm. And third, because I said screw variety, <laughs> is War Games, Dangerous Alliance versus Sting Squadron, Wrestle War 1992. The second of the two War Games matches on the series keeps everything the first one did right, tosses the few remaining flaws, and mixes in an even stronger match flow driven by personal feuds between the fighters. There's an even stronger portrayal of the team's interactions and strategies to this one, and it's a truly amazing example of the match type. I love war games so much oh, that sure. just two of them ended up in the list. But there were definitely a bunch of close calls. The Japanese women's match gets very, very close. Uh, Pillman versus Zenk as well yeah. gets very, very close. Uh, the Steiners versus Fujinami and, and uh, Izuka mm-hmm. is, sure. is also very close. And and of course, I shouldn't fail to mention the Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight Express Yes, is, is right up there as well. That's the one I had to excise that I had that for. Yeah, for for me, it's just my love of the War Games concept pushed uh, both those matches just a bit ahead. But definitely, I mean, any of those matches could have been in the in the top three. Looking forward to see you pick your top three matches when we do Fall Brawl. Yes, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how how that one works out. Well, that's, number one is War Games. Number two is War Games. Number three is War Games. <laughs> Next up, the awards that nobody wants. <laughs> First, let's take a look at your least valuable performers, the people that either didn't add anything or actively took away from the shows. Okay. So I'm going to let you pick up to three. You don't have to name three people if you don't want to. Don't worry, I can pick three people. I kind of figured. (laughs) For nearly killing someone, Sid Vicious. (laughs) I mean, do I have to explain it? He nearly murders someone in a match because he somehow fails to understand how high the ceiling is, despite interacting with the ceiling moments earlier. Mm-hmm. Despite watching people interact with the ceiling the whole time. Mm-hmm. And even before that, he's not exactly the best part of that match. No. It's not like, oh, he's good. It's just that one part where he nearly murders someone. Right. It's no, he's not good, and, and he also daily murders someone. Yes. I feel like I can't emphasize that enough. Now, in his case, it's one really bad show that I remember. For repeat performances, we have Big Cat, a.k.a. Mr. Hughes. Mm-hmm. To be fair, he's not terrible in his six-man match. I think he's okay in that, but I think it's how bad he is on the next one, the him and Ron Simmons. I love that you're picking him because of his really poor performance in that match. When last show we established that you probably slept through most of that match. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll cover my feelings on that match more as we get to it. Don't worry. It'll come okay. up again. I totally agree with you, by no, the way. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. No, I know. <laughs> yeah, obviously, I don't remember as much of the match as you do. I think I, my, as a sort of defense mechanism, my brain shut down so I would have to endure it. Which well, is points against the match, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yes. But the other thing, too, is so... We're promised a tag match where I can deal with him in a tag match. Obviously, I dealt with him a six-man tag match. Yes. 
but I'm given the promise of Cactus Jack in a match. And then you take it away. Yes. So whether it's actually his fault that they took him out of the match, it really doesn't matter. But the, the, the feeling of the wounded heart and the raw betrayal of the moment. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Just the fact that they put the two of them, they put Jack and him together. Even if Jack's not the greatest wrestler in the world, he has so much character just throughout that appearance and his other appearance in this earlier show that you just take him out of the match, it's just really frustrating. Speaking mm-hmm. of Cactus Jack, he's not on my worst, obviously. Yes. However, his other opponent is Norman the Lunatic. Okay. That promo beforehand did not help things. Yeah, yeah. That's creepy. <laughs> yeah, all, all of that. So that's really bad. And, I mean, his finish is just sitting on you. Mm-hmm. It's him and Cactus Jack, and I gotta pick between the two of them in a match. It does not help him in any way. <laughs> and the fact, yeah, the fact that Jack is used to put him over is, yeah, not helpful to his case. All right. So for my three, and I do have three. Okay. First one, I'm going to agree with you, is Sid Vicious. Mm-hmm. It sounds really weird to say it about a guy who was part of one of my matches of the series, mm-hmm. but Sid did not have a good performance in that match. He appeared to forget spots, yeah. called them on camera, yes. and capped it all off by nearly killing Brian Pillman with a disastrous powerbomb. It's still not actually an awful showing, that last part aside, and it doesn't ruin the match. No. But I do feel that Sid's flubs are stains on an otherwise terrific match. And I will say this on Sid, just so I feel like I'm being extra mean to the guy. I defended him more in the Starcade run than, than you did. In that I didn't defend him at all, and you did Correct. on at yes. least one match, yes. Yes. <laughs> so it's not like I've always hated Sid and always had it out for him. It's just, you know, the, again, almost murdering someone. Yes, yes. <laughs> Second, the masked skyscraper, Mike Enos. Ah, I will admit that poor Mike Enos was in a bad position here, coming in to fill in for a recently departed Dan Spivey, but he did a really bad job in the match. (laughs) Everyone else was doing their best to have an exciting brawl, but the masked skyscraper just couldn't keep up the same pace and looked almost exhausted midway through. He looked out of it, yeah. Yeah, some of the (laughs) weakest looking strikes that I have ever seen in wrestling. Yeah, and when you're in a match with the Road Warriors, that's going to stand out. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to give him a pass on having no character since he was an emergency replacement, Mm -hmm. but his overall performance was so weak, I'd rather them have made it a singles match. Yeah. Well, at least we won't see Mike Enos again anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Dick Murdoch. Ah, there you go. Murdoch took a match type that I already don't really like, a bull rope match, and somehow made it worse by taking what appeared to be intended to be a blood feud and turning the match into a bad comedy with some of the stranger ideas for how to use a boot that I have ever seen. (laughs) Seriously, what was with that? Yeah. I I will say Mr. Hughes, if he was just Mr. Hughes, would have made my list, but because of his relatively strong performance in the six-man match as as Big Cat, where he had some good power moves and good character, he, he made it off. Yeah, I think if you use him for brief spots in tag matches like that, Perfectly it's acceptable. passable. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe it's why I picked him, too, is because I saw how to use him properly. Yeah. And then he threw him in a singles match. All right, your worst matches of the series, up to three. <laughs> okay. Let's see. So what do I have to uh, excise? I have four. Uh-oh. 
Okay, so, well, let's keep on theme. The match between Ron Simmons and Mr. Hughes, because, again, I apparently pulled his own out of it. I remember the beginning of it, and then I remember the end of it. Yeah, as you said, if your defense mechanisms kick in, that's probably a bad sign. It's definitely a bad sign. Yeah, I really do remember that match being way shorter than apparently it is. <laughs> I was not even name like a bit. I really don't. I'm watching it with you, and I was like, I said it's a short, short one-sided match, and apparently it was not. Yes. <laughs> to your point, I will pick the bulwark match between Dick Murdoch and Bob Orton Jr. Mm-hmm. Even Megan decided that they, yeah, they took a blood feud and made a comedy match. The weird bit with the boots. The fact that they went with the standing elbow drop mm-hmm. is a little weird. As I mentioned before, the thing with that match is I don't think it was necessarily truly terrible. There are worse matches we've covered in the series so far. Mm-hmm. No one has, has probably topped the Zimbabwe Express, I think. That's that's really bad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. as a high benchmark to, I guess, stumble over in this case. But that problem with, the, with that match especially is it feels so out of place. Mm-hmm. It feels like a match from 1983 that's on a show in 1989. Yes. The first time we see Bob Warren Jr., he, he seems in the right place on the very first Starcade. But yeah, six years later, it feels like you booked them to come back because you didn't have the confidence in your younger roster. And you needed guys to have a match. And I don't think they delivered. Okay. The match for the United States Tag Team titles between Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner versus Dan Spivey and Kevin Sullivan. Really? So... There's a lot of things with this match. I know maybe, maybe it's maybe it's wrong to pick it, but no, 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 it's your opinion. Yeah, yeah. It was between that and the match between Norman Lunatic versus Cactus Jack. Oh, okay, so that, that's where I was deciding. So with this match, reading up on it, apparently the injury to Rick Steiner might have been legit. Okay, so they do a bit where he's taken out of the match, and maybe that, maybe that's why it's that way, and maybe that's something they can't control. But even the match itself wasn't that memorable with talented people involved mm-hmm. i don't know eddie gilbert performance that well but he seemed fine but it just it didn't come together for me the whole ending of this show in general you've had to follow flair steamboat and then you have this match that's going pretty decently the varsity club road warriors match but then boom instant dq and the match just stops yes rides is getting going and followed with a match that so weirdly paced because it it's a handicap match basically most of it and then the faces essentially cheat to win their match. <laughs> so it's, it's a combination of it being an eh, okay match and having to work around these things and for some reason being the main event of the show. Yeah, and that definitely casts a pall over the match. I think that it's I feel like, yeah, blatantly it, in the wrong position. Yeah. If they had swapped the tag matches, kept them in the same order they took place in, but put them before Flair Steamboat, I probably wouldn't would lean toward them to versus Cactus Jack. Mm-hmm. Because I mean the the opening U.S. Tag Team match from '92 wasn't terrible, but it's pretty forgettable. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably where this match would be if it wasn't in this position. Yeah, the fact that it is put in a position that it is not worthy of. Yes, and and I think that's entirely fair for that to count against it. Yeah, yeah. All right, for my three. Yep. And I I, I do actually want to emphasize first before I go further in this. Okay. None of these are near as bad as the worst matches from the Starcade run. Sure. They are quite dull, mm-hmm. just shorter. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. First off, I've got Dick Murdoch versus Bob Orton Jr., the bull rope match, Wrestle War 1989. 
This was not an absolute disaster, but the only real source of entertainment came from Wharton's reactions. Yeah. Murdoch did nothing of any interest. There was a real disconnect between the kind of goofy feel of the match as a whole and the extremely violent post-match, too. Yeah. And it just did not work for me at all. No. Second, Ron Simmons versus Mr. Hughes, Russell War 1992. Mm-hmm. Apologies to Ron Simmons here as his part of this was completely fine. Yeah. But unfortunately, the majority of the match is Mr. Hughes on offense, and Mr. Hughes on offense is incredibly boring. Yes. Mr. Hughes as the big cat in 1991 was a perfectly acceptable big man, but as Mr. Hughes, he seems to have forgotten any interesting moves at all. If not for his acceptable showing the year before, this would have landed him on my least valuable performers list. Yes. And finally, Todd Champion versus Super Invader, Wrestle War ah. 1992. I should have known that was coming, yeah. I fail to understand why this match was on pay-per-view. <laughs> yes. It's a squash match, and not a particularly well-executed one at that. Mm-hmm. Champion sells well enough, and Super Invader does have a few good power moves, but neither is remotely interesting as a character, and this had nothing to justify it being on a Wrestle War. Yeah, I, I agree with that one, yeah. But for the series overall, we've got some other awards to hand out. So first up, the Best Commentary Team. So which commentary team did you enjoy the most, Al? That's a tricky one, because they're all pretty good. They they're all their own sort of strengths, mm-hmm. yeah. I think JR and Dusty make a fun commentary team, but like with Jared Ventura, they can get distracted by stuff. As good as I like Ventura, he spent a lot of time distracted by his apparently his role on the next show. Yes. Like teasing it and then like stuff like that. So it doesn't disqualify him being a good performance, but that's definitely handicap in a in a really tight competition like this. Darren Cottle are good. Um obviously the first shows we watched had some version of them, so Nothing against them, but yeah, Bob Cuddle is, is a good play-by-play guy, but he didn't have anything special about him. He and JR are both play-by-play guys, basically, yes, yeah. exactly. There's no it factor to it all. Right. Is anything else extra there. Okay. That one really kind of spun me a little this way. I feel like of those, I'd probably pick the combination of Jim Ross and Terry Funk. Okay. Because I actually did like them a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't really have any negatives with Funk. He had he had a few like sort of weird dustyisms and like reacting to things, but I yeah I think his commentary sort of helps the so the idea that explaining all these moves and stories and feeling mm-hmm. I think he did a good job with that. All right, well it's unanimous on that. Jr. and Terry Funk from Wrestle War 1990 is also my pick. It was the best combo I think of pure fun and good coverage of the matches on the whole series. Funk is really funny, but also capable of complex discussions, and JR interacts with him excellently while keeping the show going. It feels natural between the two of them, yeah, more so than the kind of similar JR and Dusty team. All the commentary teams are good on this series, but JR and Funk goes that extra step further. Now, the best promos or non-match segments, because there were very few actual promos this year. I've expanded this category slightly. So were there things other than matches that stood out to us across the series? You can name up to three of them. Okay. I know I'll probably show some of yours, but it's fine. All right. Probably if just the whole thing with Terry Funk, maybe, maybe I don't know if I can count him as the whole thing, but because the, yeah, the Legends promo, the promo champions promo, we sort of hint of how he feels. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, when he doesn't leave and keeps interjecting 
and then it turns into what it turns into. That one is definitely a really strong part, I would say. Okay, you want both of those as two picks, or or you pick them one of them over the other? If I had to pick one of the other, it got to be the um, the latter part. Then I'd say. Okay, the the attack. Yeah. To be clear, you can take both of them. That's just those are two separate segments. No, I got you. Yeah. So yeah, that would I would have that second one, the constant rep section. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so let me see. I had five. <laughs> <laughs> I think for pure sort of fun factor, because of the, how how sort of over top and goofy they are. Just their whole delivery and the fact that they shout everything. There's a great World Warriors promo on the 1990s show. Oh, right. Which is really good. The We put 16 guys in the hospital getting ready for this match. One. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's the fact that they begin that shouting and then work up from shouting. Yes. It narrowly edges out for me. There's a one on the 89 show where Nikita Kolov is talking about being the guest referee. His, his crazy cookie monster voice. Yes. <laughs> if I had a fourth pick, he's my fourth pick, but I don't. One I think I really liked, it's kind of a shame we only get one of them, the backstage bit with Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express on the 1990s show is really fun. Yes, that is really good. Cornette has this great energy, obviously. I loved him as you know the ringside guy, and I've loved him all this stuff. And he has a great interaction in that match itself, even. He's a good promo, obviously, and rewatching it today, he has a great point of he'll say what his point is. Something's never changed. He hits it, circles back to it, he keeps on point the whole time. And of course, he feeds Dan Lane his one line about, he asks Dan Lane what day it is. Mm-hmm. And Dan Lane says, it's the day the music died. Which is such a great ending for that promo. It is. Yeah. And they walk off laughing, yeah. If you have to pick best promos and there's a Cornette one, he has to be in there somewhere. <laughs> so my set, I have the Flair promo following Flair versus Steamboat, combination with Funk's attack on Flair. Sure. That's fine. From Wrestle War 1989. It's a truly amazing segment that's going to stick with me for a long time. Terrific buildup to an amazing, brutal attack. Yes. Second, I've got Nikita Koloff betrays Lex Luger. Mm, yeah. Wrestle War 1991. A shocking, sudden turn that caught me completely by surprise and transformed the Koloff character in a split second. Mm-hmm. For sure. And third, I've got the Judges segment from Wrestle War 89. Mm-hmm. It's a great segment that used the judges gimmick, which can sometimes be really awkward, to expertly build a sense of strategy into Flair versus Steamboat and greatly add to the storyline, helping push that match to another level. And I do want to do an honorable mention because this is something great that I didn't think I could actually pick because technically it's not a promo on the show. Okay. But they do play it on the show. And that is Z-Man and Brian Pillman's video recap that they play in Wrestle War 92. Oh, right, yeah. It's technically a replay of something from an earlier show, but it added tons of emotion just when the show needed it. Yes, absolutely. I'll say even their Dark Horse, or Honorary One, is a great bit with early DDP in 1991's. Yes. Where he's talking about how he tricked Tay Long into the match, Mm -hmm. and Tay Long comes out, and they have this bickering, and that was really good. Da, 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 doom. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Not all matches are the usual sort of singles or tag match. So what was your favorite gimmick match on the series? And this can be something you mentioned before. It definitely will be for me. <laughs> right, so with this series being so short, and with it being fairly light gimmick matches, it's pretty easy to pick best. That, of course, is war games. <laughs> yes. 
it has a great sort of feel to it. You see this double cage, you know, the fear as it lowers down, you get this visual as people come into the match in sections, so you have this escalation of everything, the violence and the storytelling, all of that. And what's nice is that we get it twice in four shows, and both of them feel different enough. And they, they go different directions with the ending. So it's not like watching a good match, but the same good match twice. Mm-hmm. They update it between them. So it, it's one of the ones where having it twice might weaken it, but in this case, it doesn't. makes it stronger. And your preference between the two is 92, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, for mine, uh, War Games, duh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not really a surprise coming from me, especially. But uh, in War Games 92 specifically is, is my favorite of the two. Okay. War Games is such a perfect match type. It mixes wild and brutal action with rules that are just complex enough to be interesting and that add a sense of strategy to the match. You can really see how the teams work with the ebbs and flows of advantage. The match flow of a War Games match is almost always great, with the situation changing rapidly. It all makes for a dynamic and constantly interesting match, where you always have something to look forward to, right up until the chaotic and unpredictable ending. And War Games 1992 encapsulates all of that exceptionally well. Yes. Alright, do you have a worse type of gimmick match on the series? Yeah, so there's only, my count, there's only four different types throughout the show. Which I guess is a pretty good average. It's just four shows and four gimmick match types. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Bulwark match was not good, but I'm I'm less bothered by that overall, I think, than you were. Because I picked out stuff to get more bothered by in general. Mm-hmm. But, so, for me, this, is, this isn't really like a worst match. It's just the gimmick aspect didn't work for me. And that was the no DQ match between Tom Zink and Terry Taylor. Fair enough. The, the match itself was okay, but yeah. yeah, they basically don't use the no DQ step yeah. at all. Yeah, there's really no reason to have it be no DQ. I got the storyline they set up that they had matches in the DQ, so this is going to be a way to settle it. But yeah, there's not much payoff to it. Yeah, yep. I, I, I'll, I'll grant you that, yeah. The other thing about it, too, negating too much other matches, is that it comes right before a match that ends in a DQ, right. and you wish didn't. Yes. Yeah, that juxtaposition was super strange. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this one gets a DQ, then. Okay, I see how it is. Yep. <laughs> For me, you can probably guess, it's the bull rope match. Yeah. Um, yeah, Murdoch versus Orton, Wrestle War 1989. Let's be clear, rope and collar matches can be good. See Piper versus Valentine, Stargate 83, of course. Obviously. This one very much was not. It could not decide what it wanted to be, and it featured moments that were just plain strange. Yeah. And while Orton did his best to keep things interesting by sheer force of personality, <laughs> there was only so much that he could do. Yes. So here's a fun one. Okay. I sent you a list of the 56 performers with a single Wrestle War appearance. So who was it that you most would have loved to see again? So this is a guy I've picked on a number of things in the previous series and in previous shows. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't be surprised that I'm picking him. But there's extra stuff about this appearance, and because it's a one-off, that makes it special. That is Vader. Big Van Vader, to be precise. Yep. So, for starters, we get the full Big Van Vader entrance. Which is awesome. Yes. You get the Mastodon helmet, they get the, sort of, what do you call it, the air shooting out of it? What do you want to call it? The smoke? Steam. Steam. Steam thing. Yeah. You get the steam shooting out of it. 
he just seems to generally enjoy doing that as well. Mm-hmm. He seems to really have fun with that. He wills it to happen. <laughs> yes. The way he does it. I love that. His little signal of, hey guys, something really cool is about to start. <laughs> and so good that it made it into his legacy version in all the games. Mm-hmm. If you play many of the games, he's there. You get the full helmet entrance with him again willing the helmet on to shoot the steam out. Yes. The bonus, we we get a brief glimpse of one of the more famous Japanese feuds, mm-hmm. which is him and Stan Hansen. Thankfully, we don't get the one where he gets his eye nearly knocked out of his head. <laughs> I much it's interesting that they managed to work through it, but that would be a tricky one to rate if we were ever covering that show, which I don't think we will. Yeah. Because it's a New Japan show. How can you work past that and, and not get distracted the whole match? The only disappointing thing about his, about his one-time appearance is that there's no conclusion to their feud, which is disappointing. I'll certainly grant you. At the same time, it's someone you want to see again. Absolutely. And that makes you want to see him again. Absolutely. All right, for mine, I'm going to go with Yamazaki Itsuki. Okay. Honestly, I wanted to select all four of the women in the Russell War 1991 match, but I'm going to hold myself to one mm-hmm. and give it to Yamazaki. I think her crazy acrobatics are a big part of why this audience goes from vaguely curious to totally won over yes. in the course of a short match. It was a really impressive performance. I'm also going to give an honorable mention to Buzz Sawyer, mm-hmm. who I had only seen as a basic henchman for like half a minute on Starcade 1989 before this. That's true, yeah. He turned out to be quite a fun character on Russell War 1990 and had some really surprising moves even if one sadly didn't go right for him. Yeah. I hope that we get to see more of his career in other series when we're visiting this period again, because he was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have honorary mention as well. Obviously, one of your MVPs is a one-time appearance as well. Yes. As you mentioned before, to me for Janami. Mm-hmm. Oh, but the fact that Mark Callis, again, is on this show. Yes. In one appearance. <laughs> Now, granted, he's not given the best showcase, because he's definitely not going to beat the Road Warriors. Right. It's a walk-around, fight-each-other match. But there's little bits you get to see of him, not quite Undertaker yet, but close, that are neat to see that as well. And he does he does give that match a very good effort, I have to say. Everyone in 100%. that match, except for the Masked Skyscraper, was giving a good effort. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, let's talk Most Improved. Is there anyone you thought wasn't too great when they first showed up on the series, but later they really improved and turned things around? Okay. So yeah, I thought about this one a lot. The one I'm going to go with is Tom Zink. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Did I pick yours, Bob? Yes, you totally picked mine. <laughs> okay. Well, here. So, okay. So I'll go over the reasons. So mm-hmm. he was always good on the shows we had him on before in the story he appears. But there was never that certain je ne sais quoi, as they say, that certain extra thing, mm-hmm. the it factor to him. If you see him in a match, you're like, oh, that's probably good. But you get even the series, you get matches like him and Terry Taylor don't really accurately, appropriately use their stipulation. Mm-hmm. They're solid, but not great. Likewise, you have his tag match with Brian Pillman against the Freebird, which again is solid, but not great. Mm-hmm. He gets to recognize a story that he's in an experienced team uh, as youth and sort of power on their side, but they're being out, out and man basically until the end. So he's always good in these appearances, but then you have him on the last show. And one thing I really appreciate about him is this might be a timing lead to other things, to be fair, maybe give too much credit for this, but his body looks different. 
uh, for that match. Mm-hmm. He seems to have slimmed down quite a bit. I don't know if that's going off certain stuff people were doing back then. From my understanding, part of the reason for the loss of bulk is that he was actually returning, had returned relatively recently from being injured. Oh, okay. I, I don't know the exact length of time there. Okay. But I understand he, he left because of an injury at one point, and then when he comes back, he's slimmer. Okay. Because there was a period of time around 92 where a bunch of guys, like Rick Martel, for instance, got noticed to be different. Yes. So I don't know if I don't want to necessarily attribute to that, but yeah. Regardless of why he did it, it works the story that he's going after the light heavyweight title. Mm-hmm. He's less bulky now. He's slimmered, essentially, so he can work a faster match, and he definitely does. Mm-hmm. And you have that video promo before where he inadvertently promises a guy a match for his title, which he hadn't won yet, which is great. It was a nice surprise to see him really go above and beyond in a match mm-hmm. after being good but not great every time so far. Mine is also Z-Man. Okay. Um, for much the same reason. I've always thought of him as a as a capable but very generic performer. Mm-hmm. And his first two appearances hold really true to that. He's perfectly good in the ring, but he doesn't have a ton of personality. But his later performance versus Pillman was excellent. And he did a terrific job doing his part to bring really strong emotion and action to the match. Yes. It's really uh, an exceptional job. And I think we said on that show, it's it's a shame how how little they seem to use him after that point mm-hmm. where he, I believe you said he was in a dark match on the very next show. And you're just yes, like, yes. this guy seems to just finally be finding his own. Yeah. So it would have been neat to see what could have happened with him if he, and I don't know, maybe he gets later opportunities and goes back to being the regular Z man, but he definitely had a flash of greatness in that match. Yeah. The thing with me with doing shows like this, trying to cover everything these kind of shows in a series is the shows you would you might not see if you were just picking the big ones. Yeah. Like picking the famous shows. So you get bits like in the very first show we get the very surprising solid super heels performance of Greg Valentine, for instance. Mm-hmm. Piper. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Whereas if you watch so much Valentine in other shows, he's never bad. But he doesn't have that sort of killer edge he has in that one match. Mm-hmm. It's always neat to unearth the match where someone like just goes an extra step and you're like, wow, they can really do this. Yeah, you get to see the nights where everything aligns just right for a certain person. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the series. We definitely got it for Z-Man. Yes. It's time for the best and worst Wrestle Wars. Oh, boy. This is a really short series, so we're not going to do the three and three because we run out of shows. Yes. So I'm going to ask you to pick your worst and then pick your best. All right, let's see. The thing with Russell War is that all of them, to a certain extent, are real up and down shows. Mm-hmm. There's a feel of later WCW shows where you have really solid action, but maybe not much story. And then the general quality of action degrades as you get to the older, more name performers. You don't get that here, which is an, a nice sort of difference. But at the same time, it makes it harder to pick best show overall because you can go, oh man, this match is amazing. But then everything's fine. is like, oh, not very interesting at all. Oh, it's, it's, it's tough. I had a heck of a time with this. Yeah, this might be uh, maybe controversial. So I was thinking worst I have, just because there's enough that doesn't quite hit for me, is Wrestle War 1990. Mm. Follow me with this. So this Buzz Sawyer Kevin Sullivan match is good, but not great because the demi dudes clearly know they're on their way out so they're maybe not <laughs> as committed to everything 
That's followed by Norman Lutig and Cactus Jack, which I've said I didn't like. But then you have this sudden upswing of the Rock and Roll Express Midnight Express, showing you what this really interesting tag team match can be. I feel bad picking that as a word show when that match is on there, but... <laughs> but you could say that about any of these, right? That's a, that's what's tricky about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because in the same show, you have the Road Warriors and the Skyscraper, which is the point, because you don't get the big stars and performers you want. You get Mike Inez instead of Dan Tobiavi, or Stephen Savicious to a certain extent. So, it's built up and it's the points. The Pones Inc. against Freebirds match is okay. I liked it, but it, again, it, is, it wasn't quite there, as you talked about with Tom Zink, not quite getting to the place he needs to get at that point. And then, when we covered this show, we were really reversed on the two tag title matches. Because I warmed really more to the U.S. tag title match than you did, for sure, if I remember this correctly. Mm-hmm. And I was honestly disappointed by the Anderson versus Steiner Brothers match. Because for me, the pacing wasn't, wasn't there. That's the thing with the show. Outside of Flair and Luger, which is still really good, even though I don't like the count-out finish, it's a way to keep the title on Flair and not have Luger lose. I totally get that. But it's just a point to have count-out victories, main eventing shows. So I think there's enough in this show that could promise me great things and doesn't quite deliver. So that's why maybe it hurts a little more. Okay. So what do you pick for your best? Oh, man, I, I, I forgot to write it down. Like, I'm which one I'm picking. <laughs> I said I went back and wrote my worst, and I forgot to write my best one. Okay, I think, yeah, this is a tricky one. It's because these shows are, some of their parts, we are picking that way, not picking shows that have a really good match on there here and there, or a surprise match. I think if I'm looking at some of the parts, it's probably 91 is the best for me, looking at it. Okay. Because we have the the real surprise match for the women's Japanese women's tag match. Mm-hmm. All the sort of unimportant matches are still, for the most part, really decent. Rhodes and Lindell wasn't bad. Eden Armstrong, for having no stories, is actually pretty strong. The six-man tag match is surprisingly good for a match with Mr. Hughes as a big cat and <laughs> the Saber Troll. <laughs> it has Ricky Morton doing his Ricky Morton stuff. That helps a lot. Yes, yeah. Although there's some stuff I didn't feel hit it, like the you know, DQ match as mentioned. The Young Pistols Royal Family match is pretty forgettable, but never bad for me. No, yeah, it's a perfectly acceptable tag right. match. It's just, yeah, it's just there. It's anchored by the the first World Games match, which has a like, strong poem performance. And there's no truly terrible matches on it. There's stuff that's not as good, but there's a bunch of good surprises on here for me. Like I said, the Japanese Women's tag match is a really good surprise. Luger and Spivey surprised me a lot. I've always liked Luger, mm-hmm. but Spivey never had, again, that show-making performance as a singles wrestler, anyways, for me. So, the same work, this really solid match helped. And, obviously, you have the Vader Hansen match. So, you have full of Vader interns, and you have their crazy brutality and rough fighting. It's hard to pick best, because you end up not picking a show that has this match here or this segment there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think, overall, I gotta pick 91, then. Okay. It's tricky, but, yeah. Yeah, this was really, really tough. And I want to emphasize that all four of the Wrestle Wars are at least solid. Yes. Um, and all four have excellent standout matches and moments. Mm-hmm. So all four are well worth watching, at least in part. Mm-hmm. But for me, so for taking my worst, there's one show where that division I mentioned stands out particularly harshly. Thinking out where you're going with this one. So I'm going to choose 
Wrestle War 1992. Yeah, knew that was coming. It has two of my worst matches of the series in its first half. True. A half otherwise full of simple matches that are mostly acceptable, but never really grab you. Yeah. It does get awesome in the last three matches. And those last three matches are about half the show, but it's a bit hard getting to that point. I think for me, that's what saves the show from being worst, is, mm-hmm. is the quality of the last like third of the show. And my best... Okay. My best is Russell War 1990. I knew that was coming when your reaction was that. <laughs> That's fine. It has a number of heated contests, including a legendary feud and another that was a dream match for me, a cool bit of history in the form of me, Mark Callis, and a terrific Flair versus Luger match that's different from their Starcade matches we loved and featured huge character development for Luger, Sting, and the Horseman. There's no bad matches on the show at all. No. And it's a very easy watch. But honestly, again, all four shows are solid at worst. You cannot go wrong with the series. Yeah. You just might want to pick and choose moments on some of the shows. And for me, 1990 wins out because that's the show where I don't feel the need to give that advice. Mm-hmm. I feel like 1990, I can just say, just watch the show. Yeah. Where the other ones, I have to like say, okay, you might want to skip this or you know, just watch this match and this match and this match. Yeah. 89 is a tricky one for me. As we discussed, yeah. the order of the show is all out of whack. And there's some stuff that's not good and stuff that's really not good, like the bull rope match. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's that's an even one. I, I think the worst of that show is not the worst of the series. So that's that's a tough one to pick between 91 and 89. But I think 91 was enough of surprises for me that, that made it stand out. Yeah. But I think 91 and and 89 both had really, really, really strong moments Yes, that overwhelmed the awkward parts of the show, where 92, it had really strong moments, but they were all so localized on one part of the show that I can literally say to someone, watch half of this show. Sure. Yeah. So if if you're looking at the half of the show that I advise you to watch, it's terrific. Mm -hmm. It might even be the best show of the series in that case. Sure. But I can actually tell you to skip half of the show. And that's a problem. Yeah, for sure. So that's why it ends up my worst. I understand that. We've given our awards and our analysis, but there's one more thing that we'd like to do, and that's having some fun with setting up our ultimate Wrestle War cards. So here's the rules. Each of us designs a Wrestle War card featuring eight matches drawn from the actual Wrestle War matches. We can only use each performer as a competitor once. So someone can show up as a manager or commentator or interference or some other role on some other matches, but you can only use them once as an actual competitor. For instance, if you picked Flair versus Luger from Wrestle War 90, you couldn't use either as a competitor in other matches, but you could still use matches where Sting was a competitor, since he only showed up as effectively a manager in that one. You can use any match in any position, and you're not required to pick an actual main event for your main event. Opening my show, I've got the Japanese Women's Tag Team match. So the later WCW shows would begin with Cruiserweight matches. Yep. They would set this really fast pace and this crazy action. They get you ready for watching anything else in the show. You give it the worst match following it, and sometimes they did, but that really set the pace. So for me, that one, this is a good one for it. It wakes you up and makes you go, what's gonna, what else is going to happen in this show? Mm-hmm. I had no expectation for this match, and it's amazing. My second match is the match between Ryan Pillman and Tom Zink for the lightweight title. Mm-hmm. 
to contrast the fast hard hitting match, you have the slower, solid technical match that has a lot of action in it, but it's definitely more about working holds. So it stands out against the previous match. It's not more of the same. It's a different feel with similar weight classes they're going for. Okay. Contrasting that, you have the match between Lex Luger and Dan Spivey for the U.S. title. All right. As I noted, the match surprised me quite a bit. And going from two essentially cruiserweights, term they didn't use yet, admittedly, to two heavyweight working a strong technical hardening match is a good contrast. Mm-hmm. Just to get them on the show. And I feel like I make enough pitch for being on there as part of the whole show. I have Sting versus the Iron Sheik for the TV title. Okay. I need a Sting on my show, plain and simple. Uh-huh. That's the, that's the main reason. <laughs> I mean, because like, I don't want to ignore him. Secondly, it's short and inoffensive. You get a great, um, excited Sting promo. Yes. And if you watch the build-up, you get the funny bit where he tricks Iron Sheik into doing his um, club exercises, and he refuses to do it. So you get that, which is working for it. And his entrance that year was really great, too, yes. the running out with all the kids. Right. And so bearing in mind that this is Ultimate Wrestle War, so this is all one show. So I'm building up a later match. So you have... Him being put in a strong position, have dominantly defeating a former world champion in another promotion, and finishing his title. So now he's a strong contender for the world title, setting things up for later. Okay. To follow that match, that's short and pretty solid. You have the surprising everyone with this violence and chaotic nature, and that is the match between Big Van Vader and Shane Hansen. Okay. I figured that would end up on yours, yeah. Oh, yeah. It helps that there's no overlap with them as well. So you can put them on any show. Yeah, true. It's great for a match concept like this. We got to pick all of them. While I'm disappointed it has no ending, the match feels so crazy and real that I just had to give the nod here. Okay. Because it feels like they're legit hitting each other and just throwing each other around because they kind of are. Yes. They don't pull punches. And it's a little hard to follow when they get right up next to the poor announcers and fighting each other in the chairs. But they make it work really well. And I like the idea of you have Vader dragging Henson off at the end. It's a really nice visual. Mm-hmm. So now that the crowd is <laughs> completely surprised by all this sudden violence, needs something to sort of help get them back in the right mindset for classic old school wrestling. So we have the Rock and Roll Express for the Midnight Express. Okay. Classic rivalry that delivers a fun, engaging match. We talked about the, in the previous Starcade summaries that the match of the Rock and Roll Express in their cage match against the Andersons, it's a great example of the face and peril working underneath sort of tag match. Mm-hmm. For me, this is the great example of like the fun, regional, almost house show kind of match, where they really play around a lot, but then when the match gets going serious, they get serious with it. Yep. It's a great example of how that works. As I noticed, a good palate cleanser after the rough and tumble nature of the previous match I have with Vader Hansen. Absolutely, yeah. All the different kind of stuff is really great, by the way. And yes, especially the uh, bit where he starts boxing Nick Patrick. Absolutely. <laughs> As you can probably guess by people that are on the show already, I did not pick a War Games match. No, yes. I figured that as soon as you said you had to get Sting on the show. Yes, exactly. I don't have a War Games match because there's no way I can exclude match number eight, which is Ric Flair was Rick's Steamboat for the world title. I figured, yeah. Once that's there, the show works around it for me. Okay. Planning this ultimate rest of the war for me. It's one of the greatest world title matches we've ever seen, so it has to close out the show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and for sake of my show's imaginary continuity storyline... Oh, yes. Just to be clear, you have to have the forest been attacking, setting things up. Okay. All right. 
My first match was Miss A and Mickey Honda versus Yamazaki and Kitamura. Mm-hmm. That's Wrestle War 1991. Just the same as you, I thought that's a great nod to how WCW will later be opening their shows with these really fast-paced uh, cruiserweight matches. Mm-hmm. Seems like a match that would get the crowd really charged up, because it did. <laughs> yes. My second match is actually going to be Bad versus Smothers from Wrestle War 1992. Interesting. I felt like I needed one of the Let's Show Off the New Guys matches to be true to the series theme. Okay. And that's the best of the ones that I really could pick. Narrowly beating out Todd Champion versus Super Invader. Uh, yes, extremely narrowly. <laughs> <laughs> By miles, yes. Only, only the width of the Grand Canyon, at least between okay. those matches. Yeah. <laughs> My third match is Fujinami and Izuka versus the Steiner Brothers from Wrestle War 1992. Uh, hopefully on Earth 8992, Izuka's nose doesn't get broken. But even if it does, this was still great. <laughs> yes. My fourth match is the Varsity Club versus the Road Warriors. Okay. From Wrestle War 1989. I know that concludes inconclusively, but it was actually a very, very fun brawl while it lasted. And it got a bunch of good character in there with uh, Nikita Koloff as the guest referee and everything. So it's a good spectacle. Mm-hmm. I see that. My fifth match is Brian Pillman versus Z-Man, Wrestle War 1992. I don't think I really need to explain why this one is on there. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> it's, absolutely. It's just a, it's a terrific singles match, really, really solid performance and great emotion. Mm-hmm. My sixth match is the Freebirds versus Doom from Wrestle War 1991. Okay. And this is interesting because it's another world tag titles match, but... It's for the WCW tag titles, ah. where the Varsity Club versus Road Warriors was for the NWA ones. Fair enough. I thought it had a really interesting atmosphere to it and was very well performed overall. And as you will see in a moment, I was kind of stuck. Yes. <laughs> because my seventh match is War Games. Mm-hmm. Sting Squadron versus the Dangerous Alliance from Russell War 1992. Yes. That was the better of the two War Games matches and a really, really exciting storyline just terrific version of that match concept, and I could not see my ultimate Wrestle War card without a War Games match. Mm. No matter how badly it screwed up making the rest of the card for <laughs> me. <laughs> I eliminated 10 guys with a single match pick. <laughs> yes. What I think is neat about doing this way is that, so there's four Wrestle War shows. Mm-hmm. Two have War Games matches on them, and yep. two don't. Yep. So we represent both versions of Wrestle War, essentially. Yes, we have. Yes. And that leaves my eighth match. I did not put War Games on the lead, because I did still kind of want a world title match to be the lead match. Oh, I see where you're going. And also, it works better for my own imaginary storyline, which I will explain to you. Okay. But my eighth match is Flair versus Luger. Gotcha. Wrestle War 1990. Story-wise, on Earth 89-92. I think the story here is that this was actually going to be Sting versus Flair, just as it was in our reality. But this time, because Flair stacks the deck against Sting by forcing him to take a title shot on the same night as War Games. So Sting powers through War Games, but as he's leaving the match, he's assaulted by the horseman. There you go. And Luger makes the save, but it's too late. So Sting tells Luger to take the match with Flair so that Flair can't get away. Well, he gets checked out by the medical crew. And uh, and yes, making that make a lick of sense is why this is my main event rather than War Games. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> it was so hard yeah, I to pick that. this card once I picked War Games. I eliminated 10 guys with a single match, which was ridiculous. Yeah. But I just I wanted to have a War Games on there. I could not see 
making this card without a War Games match. I totally get it. I really tried to do some gymnastics, like mentally, mm-hmm. try to make it work, but there's no way you can have... You can't have Flair vs. Luger nope. if you have one on there. And then if you pick the other War Games match, you can't have Steamboat and Flair. Right, or the Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight Express. Yes. There's a bunch of, bunch of things that overlapped. Yeah, I, I did have to make sacrifices, obviously, as a result of that choice then. But I think what came together is still a card that I tried to make as representative of the series as I could, mm-hmm. with some of the unusual and interesting matches it featured. Yeah. And just also trying to emphasize that feeling of transition through it as well. I can see that, yeah. And I am rather proud, actually, that I managed to get at least one match from each Wrestle War on there. Yeah, that's true. That was a fun thing to try. All right, now it's time for some re-gimmicking. So each of us has been given a match from each other's card, and we have to give that match a new gimmick or stipulation that would turn it into something new. So this time we got our Ultimate Wrestle War cards done early enough that we provided our matches to each other ahead of time, but we haven't heard each other's re-gimmicking, so this should be interesting. Yeah. So for me, Al provided Brian Pillman versus Z-Man from Wrestle War 1992. Mm-hmm. Well, it's two guys fighting about who gets to hold a belt. So the obvious and admittedly kind of boring choice is a ladder match. No, I worked. I kind of feel you might go that way. Now, I did go with that. Yeah. And I think they do quite well with it. But to make it more interesting, here's a wrinkle. All right. It turns out that Z-Man's premature offer to put the title he didn't even own yet on the line was accepted. Oh. So as they start the match, JT Southern and Scotty Flamingo charge down to participate. And Pillman and Z-Man must cooperate to fight them off while still being at odds over the title, making for an odd mix of team ladder match and four-way ladder match. Will Pillman and Z-Man put aside their differences and defeat their shared rivals, or will one of them betray the other to get the gold? I thought that would emphasize the already good story of the two of them being at odds over which of them is supposed to have the title, but also bring in that element of neither of them liking these other guys. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I know it's not that crazy of a match design, but I thought it, it was a good emphasis of the uh, the storyline. I wanted to keep that storyline really strong. Yeah. Turns out you're breaking wrestling timelines by having ladder matches that early as well. That's kind of fun, actually. Uh, With 92, it's really close. It's, it's really Brett close. Yeah. Because there's a, the tryout one. Brett has a house show match they film with him and Sean. Right. And then they just give the match to Sean, which really annoyed Brett. <laughs> Here's the thing I can work. That's great. Let's have Razor and Sean work instead. <laughs> he was not happy about that. I can't remember when the first like Calgary one is. I think the first Calgary one's got to be earlier than that. Yeah. Okay, looked it up, and here's the dates. The first ladder match on record in Stampede Wrestling of Calgary is in 1972, well before the Wrestle Wars series. But that tryout ladder match for the WWF didn't happen until July of 1992, after that year's Wrestle War. But we still wouldn't be breaking history, because WCW had held a barbed wire ladder match during the first Great American Bash Tour in July of 1987 between Dusty Rhodes and Tully Blanchard. That's the same tour that had the first War Games match. Unfortunately, it looks like we don't have the 1987 shows on the WWE Network at this time, so hopefully they'll find them. All right, Al. For you, I provided Fujinami and Izuka versus the Steiner brothers. So what you got for me? All right. So I've gone a couple of different ways. I was sitting on going like completely crazy 
because there's a whole contingent of Japanese wrestling that's all about the crazy. Yes. Like, smashing light tubes, uh, exploding ring death matches, all sorts of insanity. There's a match where the ropes are barbed wire and electrified, and if you get out of the <laughs> ring, the water is filled with explosives. I did not make that up. That's a real thing. <laughs> so I'm tempted to go that direction. Okay. But then I was thinking about it. That just turns the match into them slamming each other on things. Right. And you have so many good people in that. As funny as that would be, that's maybe the best direction to go. Plus, let's maybe not give Izuka a chance to get even more injured on on this reality. That's true. Fair enough. <laughs> so, kind of going off of your idea, actually, you should inspire me to tweak mine just a little bit. Okay. One of my issues with that show in the official timeline on that Earth is that... So, the match is the Thunder Brothers, who are the WCW Tag Team Champions, but they're not defending the titles. They're actually competing for a match against the New Japan Pro Wrestling Tag Team Champions. Right. Who are not on the show. So it's not even, it's non-title for them, but it's title against the champions. It's non-title and it's a number contendership match. So it's a really confusing way to do that because there's no tension with the title and it's not even an actual match with championships on the line. So what's that might be interesting is you can still make it number contenders match to a certain degree, but we want to include the champions who I should know at this point are Big Bad and Dangerous. Okay. Just Bam Bam Bigelow and Big Van Vader. So I tend to just put them in the match, but that's a little bit outside the rules, so I can't just change the match to them. However, we can include them if it's a lumberjack match. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Just to make things extra fun. So you have to have the ring surrounded on four sides at some point for the you know the conflict. All the faces in, are in the middle of the ring and the Angel Lumberjack on the outside. So one side of the ring, you got Vader. One side of the ring, you got Bigelow. Third side of the ring, you have their manager. And I don't know who their manager was, but say they have a manager at this point. Okay. However, that's one side uncovered. So what is surrounding them on the fourth side? The Mastodon helmet, of course. Oh, there you go. Yes. The Mastodon helmet is blowing steam angrily at them. It is so terrifying that no one would go outside that side of the ring. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're going to retreat away from Vader and Bigelow, and then you look, and that's the national way. You're like, oh, nope. That's actually the most terrifying thing there. Exactly. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Thank you. But we've got a special surprise. We do? We also sent a match each to John. And believe me, this is definitely the main event of re-gimmicking. Good. So, Al, I'll let you pick. Which one do you want to hear first? Um... Do the one I gave him first, then we'll mix it up. All right. So from Al, John received Stan the Lariat Hansen versus Big Van Vader from Wrestle War 1991. Mm-hmm. Hansen and Vader are strapped to gurneys and are rolled down the ramp and tossed unceremoniously into a smoke-filled ring. Panels of lights descend from the ceiling, and fans disperse the smoke, revealing an operating table with a large strap to fasten them down to the table. Both competitors are wearing full body suits with cutouts where their organs should be, Naturally. and temporary tattoos of the organ on each person where exposed. They also have odd-looking red noses. Okay. The first pin on the table gets the loser strapped down, becoming the patient, and the winner dons a head mirror and stethoscope, becoming the surgeon. The head mirror and stethoscope can be used as weapons, for instance, to blind or choke the opponent. Naturally. The surgeon has to use the patient's hand to draw with a finger dipped in red paint to draw around each of the organs. 
If they are successful, they can they can continue to drive with the other organs. Makes sense. If the paint touches the outline, the surgeon gets tased by the ref. <laughs> Lighting up the nose and hopefully the patience if the connection is good enough. Oh, there you go. I was wondering where the nose thing was coming. Uh, was, I knew there would pay off. The ref undoes the strap, and the patient can rise from the table, though the surgeon can still try to draw if he desires, even as they continue to fight. Sure. But three tases will disqualify the surgeon. Oh, okay. Once all the organs are outlined in paint, the match ends, and the surgeon is declared the winner. Or the match ends if the surgeon gets tased three times. Okay. Oh, did he, did he name the match, by the way? He did. I'll, I'll tell you that in a moment. Excellent. Okay, good. The patient can always interfere with the operation, so it's important that the surgeon really knocks them out and has a steady hand. Sure, of course. Also, by the way, the guest referee is, of course, Dr. Death Steve Williams. Naturally. Yeah. The winner of the match gets a cosmetic surgery of their choice paid for by the loser, perhaps to reattach a retina (laughs) or a rhinoplasty. (laughs) There you go. And yes, John named the match. He called it Operation Operation. (laughs) With apologies to Milton Bradley and Hasbro. Oh, okay. I would say if he didn't name it, I would call it the Surgeon General match. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Thank you. I may have told John about the eye knockout and breaking of the nose storyline. Yes. <laughs> or not storyline, reality. Yeah, it's reality, yeah. And second, from me, John received War Games, Sting Squadron versus the Dangerous Alliance from Russell War 1992. Oh, boy. So here are John's rules for his revision, which he called the Brawlosis match. Nice. Okay. During the entrances, each team participates in a team-wide swimsuit contest to decide a winner for each side as they pose and strut. John says that he would predict that Rick Rude and Sting would be the winners for each side, with the others using strongman poses, old-timey striped swimsuits, scuba gear, or just refusing to participate. I can see Zabisco refusing to participate in that yes. thing, yeah. Or I picture him or Arn in the old-timey striped swimsuit. Oh, yeah, I think it'd With be... like, him. 1920s ones? Yeah, 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 the, the full-body thing-looking one? Yes, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. For the match, it becomes a five-versus-five tag match with a single fall deciding the victorious team. However, the winners of each team's swimsuit contest will take a five-count to fall instead of a three-count. Oh, okay. So, the teams want to prioritize having them in the ring if possible. That makes sense. Pins can be broken in the usual way, but are also broken if all four other members of the team line up on the apron or position themselves on all four turnbuckles and strike a synchronized pose. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, yeah. So it's the, uh, what, are they, what were they called? The Ginyu Force. Yes, yes, basically. There you go. Okay, I'm with you. Following a four-man pin break pose, the current legal men must both tag out. Of course. The teams can also use a move called the Twin Colossus. Okay. If two members of a team maintain a synchronized pose, no pinfalls will be counted. This can also be used to pause a pinfall count, which has already begun, but does not actually break it. The ref just holds at that number while the pose is maintained. I assume he holds his hand in the steady position as well? Yes, yes. Yeah, makes sense. Either the two-man or four-man synchronized poses may be broken up by the other team. John notes that the high-level Four Pillars of Creation strategy exists, in which all four non-legal men maintain poses on the turnbuckles as consistently as possible, making it difficult to break the Twin Colossus. Solid logic there. Yeah, yeah. 
For dramatic effect, the lights dim 30% any time a pinfall starts, and spotlights highlight the pinfall and anyone who's dramatically posing. Also, a local high school percussionist performs drum rolls as long as the Twin Colossus or a pin break pose is in effect. <laughs> okay. Good to know that we're supporting the local arts programs there. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> what what you think of that one, Al? That's that's very interesting. <laughs> it's, it's very John. <laughs> yeah, it's very John, yes. I like it. I like the, the level of thought that he put into to the match strategies as well. <laughs> yeah. I like the visual of some of the people like Eaton and Zavisco like reluctantly posing because they have to. Yes. There's a like, grimace on their face. Yeah. It's like the match strategy, but I really don't want to do this. <laughs> I mean, well, poor Rick Rude's got to be conflicted. Because on one hand, he probably wants to wear, you know, let's be honest, a tiny Speedo because he wants to show off his abs. <laughs> but he also might want the full body swimsuit so he can airbrush it with assaulting things. Yes, yes, with one of his awesome airbrush designs, yeah. You know what happened? Okay, I got it. So he comes out with that at first, but they realize he's trying to cheat because he has he has a twin colossus pose airbrushed on his outfit. <laughs> Perfect. And they realize, wait, you can't do that, and they airbrush off of him. Awesome. There awesome. No cheating allowed in this kind of serious match. Yeah, the the brawl losses is a is a storied WCW tradition of one year. You can't exactly. cheat in that. Never. <laughs> and that wrap. <laughs> Oh, John ideas. I'm I'm so glad he was willing to do that. It it was fun to hear his his uh, thoughts. Absolutely, yeah. And that wraps up our coverage of Wrestle War. It was a much shorter series than our first, but a really interesting watch. So, what have we got coming up next? Mm -hmm. Well, first up, we're doing another single show, but for the first time we're taking a step away from WCW. In these strange and often trying times, a lot of shows and sporting events have come up with creative solutions to still have the feeling of a big live audience even when fans can't physically be in attendance. Mm-hmm. Back in 1989, the AWA had to figure out how to do just that as well. Though in their case, it wasn't because of a global pandemic, it's just nobody was coming to watch. Yes. We're going to have a look at their attempt to revitalize the company with an epic three-team company-wide competition, the pilot episode of the AWA Team Challenge series. Oh yeah. And now, our next series. I'm Eric Bischoff, and welcome to the Slamboree Control Center. You know, World Championship Wrestling has its roots deeply planted in the rich tradition of professional wrestling. And with that in mind... World Championship Wrestling is excited to host Slamboree, a Legends Reunion. During Slamboree, the top superstars of WCW will be competing at fans. Slamboree 93 will be available exclusively on pay-per-view. The event will be Sunday, May 23rd at 7 o'clock Eastern and will be one of the most talked about events of 1993. But right now, let's go to a man who is a legend in this sport, Mr. Gordon Soler. Thank you very much, Eric. Yes, it will be Sunday, May 23rd. And here are some of the legends who will be in attendance. Johnny Valentine, maybe the greatest U.S. heavyweight champion ever. The incomparable Lou Fez, the man considered the greatest world champion ever. Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, three times world champion. Blackjack Mulligan, the master of the claw from Eagle Pass, Texas. And Don Morocco. Magnificent Don Morocco was a professional surfer and underwater photographer who entered the ring under the guidance of Lord Blears. 
and suddenly became one of the most feared men in the sport. Don Morocco, a free spirit, makes his return at Slamboree, right, Eric? Absolutely right, Gordon. And fans, listen to this. The WCW World Heavyweight title will be on the line as Big Van Vader defends against the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith. Barry Windham and Arn Anderson have come to terms to meet for Barry Windham's NWA title. The event will be Sunday, May 23rd, beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern, exclusively on pay-per-view. And without a doubt, this is going to be one of the most talked about events of 1993. Don't be left out. Call your cable operator and say that you want to be a part of all of the excitement, all of the fun, and the memories that will be Slamboree 93. For Gordon Soley, I'm Eric Bischoff, and we'll have more WCW action in just a moment. Nice, nice little piece in the background there. Yeah, like the king is coming out to the court, I assume. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or a uh, uh, JRPG uh, main castle theme. Oh, yeah. There you yeah, go. yeah. So next up is Slamboree. Running from 1993 through 2000, Slamboree picks up the year after Wrestle War ends. It features main events like the British Bulldog versus Vader, as we heard there, mm-hmm. Sting versus Vader. Oh, yeah. The Giant versus Sting. Interesting. And Jeff Jarrett versus Diamond Dallas Page versus David Arquette in a ready-to-rumble cage match. Oh. We've also got Legends matches, including Al's favorite, Wahoo McDaniel, against my favorite, Dick Murdoch. All that and a return to one of the best Starcade matches with the Nasty Boys versus Harlem Heat. (laughs) Oh, joy. Oh, and there's a Battle Bull show. (laughs) Of course there is. Yes, we we really picked that series. No, I don't know what we were thinking either. (laughs) You can blame me. It's all my fault. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Fair enough. So, because we make poor life choices, Mm -hmm. our upcoming releases are, in December, the AWA Team Challenge Series pilot, and in January, Slamboree 1993. We hope that you'll join us as we continue our journey through the history of WCW, It's been a fun ride so far, and all jokes aside, I'm looking forward to more. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or a review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling.